Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness in pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of many lore-minded folks here at Blizzard Watch, and I've got my fantastic co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. Rossi, how you doing today? Trying to find an outfit that looks good on my night elf, so... Internal hell. <laughs> you know, I... I always had a weird problem with trying to dress up my night elves, even my blood elves, because I, the proportions on some of the gear is just really off. The if, real problem I was having is that they there are certain breastplates that don't look right, uh, and they're mostly van- vanilla ones. They don't look like an actual piece of armor that's on your chest. They look like someone body painted you. And in yeah. the process... I'll just say this, guys, if, if you're a little sensitive to these kind of things, I apologize, but they squished her boobs pretty hard while they were painting her because it just does not look right. And she doesn't look like this. When I take her armor off, she does not look like this. When she's just standing around in her under things, she looks fine. She looks proportional. Then I put this thing on and it's like, whoa, what happened? Oh, that's not good. Yeah, the, there's so, definitely uh, some weird things with some of the races like that, too, because it's not just night elves either. Like, I've oh, noticed yeah, that sure. with Torrin as well. Like, it, it's the oddest thing. But we're not here to talk about co- uh, cosplaying in-game or transmogging into our favorite outfits today. We're here to talk about oh. lore and questions from our readers and listeners. And thank you very okay. much. As always, please continue to send us those questions. Uh, again, you can send it to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Just make sure you specify which show it's for, whether it's for the main show or for Lore Watch. Uh, and as well, you can always hit us up on the Discord channel, which is where some of our questions have come from today. First question on the docket. What kind of corruption do you think was in Sargeras's blade? Felt doesn't make sense because it would have massively empowered the Demon Hunter artifacts, and Death would have done the same to the Death Knight ones. Obviously, he would never use Void, so what do you think it could be? This is from Eldritch Phil. What do you think? Try and put 5,000 gallons into a 5-gallon tank and see what happens. 
Okay. He could very well have used fell. Just more fell than your artifact could handle. More fell than anything could have handled. So it burned out your artifact in the process of draining it out. It, you know, it could have been anything, and it still could have had that effect. It's your artifact is powerful, but is it the size of you know that thing? I mean, I think it's pretty big. Is all I'm saying. Uh, I don't think it has to be. It can't be this because of that. Is is you're making an assumption that is not established. There's think, nothing in game that says it couldn't be fell. No, no. This is not the first time that I've heard somebody ask this question specifically, and mostly it's because fell is usually represented by something that's green. Uh, even if it's fire, it's usually green-ish or green in hue. And Sargeras's blade and Sargeras himself aren't. They're very like fire red. Yes, and, but he's. We know from it's not. He's notoriously fell corrupted, and he used oh yeah. fell against. The- just because we usually see it as green doesn't mean it's always green and it doesn't mean that it couldn't have been something fell or something else like saying it would have done it would have massively empowered the artifact the whole point of that was it did massively empower if you go back and and remember when we did the quest at the time drawing the stuff out of the sword didn't immediately destroy your artifact it overcharged it it. you were like spitting sparks if you opened up your your tab for it it was crazy yeah, and you had everything, even if you didn't have everything before. You had everything, and everything was supercharged. For two weeks, you were like a god. I ran around loving it that two-week period of time. My artifacts were crazy. So it's quite possible that, in fact, he didn't, he put a lot of everything into it, and that's why your blade was like... Before it finally went... And that's... That's the other thing to keep in mind, too. Like, he is a titan. Not was, not formerly. Where He's fell corrupted, but he's still a titan. And Mm -hmm. they have access to order a whole lot of energies that we can't even begin to fathom. And don't forget, it wasn't just an individual weapon that was draining it. In the cutscene that we see, it's champions from all of the the class halls, essentially, are there draining it. So there's nothing that says that it's like a little bit fell, a little bit death, a little bit fire, a little bit, you know, water, air, earth. Essentially what I'm saying, what I'm getting at is we don't know. We could speculate our brains out. We could sit here and guess and make stuff up, but there's nothing in game that tells you what he, why it's, you know, he, they describe it as poison at one point. Like he's, the blade is poisoning the planet, but that's a metaphor. The effect the sword is having is like if I stabbed you with a poison knife, but it's not specifically that. It's just that's the best metaphor we can grasp as to what effect it's having. It could very well be that he stabbed he stabbed the blade through where most of Cthulhu's body was. Because keep in mind, old gods are enormous. Uh, Yog saran is so big that his tendrils reach all the way from Alduar down into like Borean Tundra and oh what's the other zone I can never remember the other zone but the one that's actually got um, it's got a mine in it where people are digging up Saranite and going crazy Howling Fjord yes so his tentacles go that far they go across the whole continent and they could have gone further yeah they, they go to the world tree that's there that's also not it's in Grizzly Hills it's also not right next to Alduar you know Alduar his his physical manifestation is much, much more massive than the place where we fight him. And that's the same for all of them. When we when they killed uh, Yashraj, 
when when Amethyl reached out and killed Yashraj, and keep in mind it was like picking a pimple for him, chunks of it rained across the planet. Uh, chunks of it. Sorry, I shouldn't have said her. Um, chunks of it rained across the planet, uh, and they found those chunks all across the southern continents. Yep. It wasn't just the heart. Uh, it was, there were pieces of it everywhere. So it, it's very hard to know what, if anything, what in particular the blade was using, if it was using any one particular thing. It could have just been so much power that it was poisoning Azeroth. I mean, to, to use a, an old and kind of gross analogy, people aren't immune to meat just because they're made of meat. You know, you, you can still kill somebody with meat. It's weird, but it's still true. Uh, a bone knife isn't going to be like, oh, I have bone in me, so I'm fine. No, if I jam you with this thing, you're going to get toxic. You know, it's it's going to give you sepsis. You're going to get sick. Uh, it's quite possible it was just making her sick because it's not her. It's it's Sargeras. It was Sargeras's essence reaching in and poisoning her. Yeah. So, no idea. Yeah, and we might not ever know, and that's the thing. Like, we might – we. it's such a, a thing that I don't think is going to come back that I think it's just going to be left up to player speculation uh, just because we're going to be moving on to the Shadowlands. We're going to be moving on to the post, uh, the aftermath of, of everything that's happened in Battle for Azeroth. Maybe they'll make mention of it when they we, you know, stabilize the planet. Who knows? But there, people have made a point, and I've seen this on Twitter a lot, that, you know, the sword is still there. Yep. It's not removed. I don't it's think still it's, in there. I don't think it's ever coming out. I don't think the point is we're going to pull the sword out and fix Azeroth. It's the, the metaphor I always use is like when I got stabbed, I got, when I got like shot in the leg, they didn't take the arrow out. They left it in when they, I was, I had it through going through my thigh. They pulled it out of the gas tank of the motorcycle. And then they, they, they took me on a boat to, to the mainland. And I didn't, was in the hospital before they finally took it out. And they took it out by unscrewing the broadhead and then just pulling the shaft out very quickly. And the reason for that was they didn't want to do it somewhere else was because if you just pull it, if someone gets something impaling them uh, and you just pull it out, that thing was holding the blood in. Yep. Now nothing's holding the blood in. You pull the sword out, Azerite could start gushing out of that thing. Well, and to think about it, we've, we've sort of learned from that already, too. And we can talk about, like you're saying, when they pulled Yasharaj out. When they when he when Yasharaz was yanked from the surface of Azeroth, it wasn't just the surface. That's what created, you know, a huge, massive disturbance that had to be fixed and and shaped and channeled. That created a huge arcane font. It was a gaping open wound, and that's when you look at the size of of the wound that's being caused by Sargeras's blade. It's the same thing. Like you rip that out that's going to be worse than having it in there. Like, how are you going to stitch that back together? How? You don't know how, one, you don't know how deep it goes. Things massive. Mm -hmm. You can see it from halfway across the world. You uh, can definitely see it from Aldum for easy. Oh, I don't yeah. know. Can't you see it from Thunder Bluff? You can. I'm pretty sure if you're in Thunder Bluff, you can see it. So, yeah, you it can. ain't small. So, we don't know how deep it goes. We don't, we have no idea. Uh, so, we don't know what energies it has. We don't know how deep it is. It, it's going to be there for the long haul, I think. And it's... We'll, we'll see what happens. We might get some more information regarding it, but I think it's going to be mostly left up to player speculation. And yeah, that's I'm why okay at with the that. end, when in the end, when Magni's like, you know, hey, we saved the, we saved us from from Nazoth, and a lot of people are like, yeah, but the big the big sword's still stabbing the planet. It's like the big sword ain't going anywhere, guys. 
Yep. That big sword is probably going to be there forever. Um, I don't think you're ever going to see that thing removed. If it is removed, it'll. That's an amazing. That's an undertaking. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to think about. The only other thing that I could really think that could potentially happen with it, and this is just to kind of go completely into left field, is the way the for- the sword was formed is Sargeras formed it himself. Like, if you look at the cutscene, he formed that mm-hmm. out of his own energies. It's also entirely possible that what we siphoned off of it tempered enough that when Azeroth becomes stronger, she could theoretically absorb it. Who knows? We don't know. Uh, yeah, but- that's one possibility. Or even... Imagine if the planet actually reached down and pulled the thing out itself. Yeah, like it's like I'm ready to hatch. Okay, I'm good. Now I have a big sword. Let's let's go deal with the void. But who knows? We we don't yet. Maybe we'll find out in the future. Our next question. Hello, watchers. My main is Delos Bellflock on Blades Edge. Sorry if I uh, mispronounced that. Uh, so a few episodes ago, Rossi had a comment during Lore Watch about the light wanting everyone and everything to follow and lock into one true path, and that would entail the elimination of alternate alternate realities and timelines. This immediately had me thinking of alternate Draenor and the resident lightbound Draenei. While today's podcast did serve as a good reminder that we should take what we've heard about the lightbound from the Magar with a grain of salt, or maybe a small boulder thereof, it had me thinking, alternate Draenor is an alternate timeline reality. The Light really dislikes alternate timelines, realities, and wants them eliminated permanently. The Lightbound are apparently single-minded fanatics in the process of seeking their one true path. So based on all that, is it plausible that the Lightbound may be attempting to serve the Light, Zero in particular, by essentially acting as a fanatical murder-suicide cult, eliminating all that stands in their way, then eliminate their own timeline to remove an alternate one from the one true path? Would love to hear your thoughts. I'm going to ask you a simple question, Jeff. Sorry, I hope you don't mind that because you use Jeffrey here. Sorry. If you want to call you Delos, I'll ask a simple question, Delos. Um, but here's my question. Who says they're the alternate? Mm-hmm. From their perspective, we're the alternate. Yeah, I was going to say perspective is king. Perspective rules I mean, everything. Our, our Zira is gone. Dead. Imagine how they would think about that. Obviously, we are from a corrupted timeline where the Chosen One rejected the light and destroyed the the one who brought it to him. Can you imagine that, how that would look to them? They have a Zera. They have a, 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 a Yorel. Why would the light, the, their, from their perspective, from the light from their per- view, would see themselves as the one true path and us as a deviation that must be purged? Mm-hmm. if they thought about that at all. So I think it's much less likely that they're going to want to kill themselves than they'd want to kill us. And I'm not saying that that's how they... Like, there's nothing in game to establish that's how they're looking at it. But if I had to bet on one, that would be the one I would bet on. That they will pick their reality. What's the old saying? I think uh, it's from Mythbusters, but I know it comes from before that. I reject your reality and substitute, substitute my, own. my own. Yeah. I think they wouldn't be much more likely. People are almost always in my experience, and this includes fiction, much more likely to think their worldview is the right it's, worldview. Yeah. It's, it's like the old saying that everybody is the hero of their own story. Why are they going to paint themselves as the villain that must self-sacrifice or, or the hero that must self-sacrifice or whatever it's, well, we exist. We've done the lights work. We've saved this entire planet. This is obviously what the light wants. Why would we 
go ahead and murder ourselves when there's so much more we need to do? Like, okay, let, let's assume that they want to, you know, bring the timeline realities into, you know, focus or one thing, which the light itself has never really dealt with the whole alternate reality things yet sees one true path, but maybe that path isn't bringing the realities in line. Maybe it's inter-reality conquest of raising even more of an army because that's what we see the light bound doing is either enslaving or converting everybody on the planet, not to rule them, but to have an army to fight against the darkness so what if that extends into not taking over another reality, but doing the same thing, like recruiting or enslaving entire all other realities? Like, what if that's the one true path? What if it's not bring everything into one timeline, one existence? It's this opens up a whole path. This opens up the true path for them to get an unstoppable, limitless army to fight the void. One thing I just thought of while we were talking about this, and this goes back to conversations we've been having about the subject for a long time. If you go back to the Warcraft cosmology and Chronicle, mm-hmm. it strictly specifically says that the light existed first. Yes. And the void was created when the light had eddies and dark points within it. The void is literally a corruption of the light. So think of it this way. The light sees one true path. That one true path is the light. Yeah. And, it's it's not trying to make it all, it's not doesn't give a, a rat's butt about what timeline is the real one it cares about itself existing it should exist everywhere it believes that it should exist everywhere although it doesn't have belief at all the light doesn't seem to think it just like is. the light the things people that use the light think beings that you know like zera they think but the light itself it's not it's like the void seems to be like very much consumed with all these possible alternate realities and how they could all exist, all these different, you know, sees a million things and they're all true sort of idea. The light seems, thinks it should see one thing itself. And think of this, not as a big sapient being that's got a plan. Think of it as an animal that is wounded and the wound keeps wounding it. Yep. And it wants the wound to stop wounding it. It wants to stop having this other thing that hurts it. It wants to have everything be it. That's closer to what we're talking about. We're not dealing with a with a force. I mean, if the light had, if a light was a conscious force, then you couldn't have Zeliac wielding it. I mean, think about that. The light doesn't make moral decisions. The light doesn't decide. Oh, I won't let this person use me because he's evil. The light doesn't think. It does not, you know, Zeliac can just will his way into using it. Yes, it hurts him because his natural state of existence is one that's inimical to the light, but he can do it. If you go to the Shadowlands, there's an entire realm that's very heavily light influenced. Yep. Bastion. It's very clear that the light doesn't have, like, there's a lot more going on with the light and the void than we really understand. And... The one true path thing is a useful ideology to understand. It's a lens to look at it. That the light sees one road, and that road is the light. That doesn't mean that the light hates an alternate reality. The light does not think about what reality it's in. The light should be everywhere, in all places, at all times. 
I almost view it as like Machiavellian in that way. Like in, in I've, I've been saying this since our interactions with Zara, where it's like the end is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter how you get there. So like, yeah, if they have it, one goal instead of just saying one path, one goal I think is, is more apt because one path seems too narrow. Like you said, the light doesn't care who uses it. The light touches everything. It wants to be everywhere. Think of it like to one I'm goal. Gonna, I, yeah, I think another way to look at it is like if you go out on a sunny day, where is the light coming from? The sun, right? Mm-hmm. So it's everywhere it touches. And the only places that are dark are the places that shadows are cast, right? Now, if you take that light and you make a laser with it and you burn a village down, that's not the light making a moral decision. The light is just being there. And it's you who's making the moral decision about what to do with it. That's what happens, I think, with followers of light. That's what Zira is. Zira is the one making the moral decision, not the light. The light wants Illidan to follow it because it wants everything to be part of it. Right. Because that's what it's, it's just trying to... The light is just trying to spread. It's not attempting to make a moral stand here. It's just trying to spread. It's the people that make the moral decision. And I think that that's to a, to a certain degree, that's true of the void as well. The void drives beings mad because the void is inherently alien to the way we think and exist. It's outside of this universe. It's an alien thing. And that's why the old gods and the void lords are so inimical to life as it exists in this cosmos. But the light is the light and the void are both part of the of the cosmology of the of the existence. They're both underlaying factors. That's why you could have a shadow priest or Alaria that's not a lunatic trying to kill everyone. It's the moral the morality might be influenced by the force you're tapping, but it's how you react to it. It's just that the void is extremely difficult to remain sane while studying because it floods you with like, what about this? This could be true. What about this? What about this? And look at this. Here's another thing you haven't considered. The light doesn't make you think about anything. The light is like me. You know, everything is light. You know, it's yep. when, when you, that's where you get, like, if you look at Turalyon, Turalyon is nothing but self-confidence. Because once he accepted the light, once he took it into himself, all that stuff that bothers most people stopped being an issue to him. He doesn't have doubt. Look, look at if you look at um, before the storm, and you look at Turalyon's meeting with Augustus with Alonso's Fowl. When he when Fowl basically establishes, "I am the person I saying I am," Turalyon doesn't doubt. Once the fact is established, mm-hmm. he just goes with it. He does not have doubt. That's the good thing about the light. But the bad thing about the light is that Zira didn't have any doubts either. Yeah, and and that's I think. That's an aspect I think a lot of people, I don't want to say miss, but I don't think it's talked about enough, is that that it's a double-sided coin. And, and it, can go, it can go both ways. It can cut, mm-hmm. you know, either way. And that is a perfect example, I think, when you're talking about the two of them, like Turalyon and, and Zara are perfect examples of the good and bad of what the light can do. And I yeah, mean... And- I was gonna say to a certain example at the other side of the the other side of that we also have examples of the void doing that same thing between like Alaria and then like old gods right mm-hmm. like the, nothing nothing is as black and white as we like to make it out to be and I think we're starting to see particularly in like before the storm in 
Battle for Azeroth in general, and very likely going into Shadowlands, the extent of the gray area that both of these concepts exist in. Because we're not just going to be dealing with anima. We're going to be dealing with light and void. We know that. We know that that's still going to be a thing. That's still going to be there. We're not done with it after we're done with Nazoth. Mm-hmm. And and that's fine. But I think it's interesting that we're going to start seeing all of those gray areas. So. But, yeah. Uh, anything else you want to add to that one? No, I think I'll be pretty good. All right. Our next question. Hey, Lore Watch friends, I really enjoyed your episode a few weeks ago about Tehran's quest for vengeance and your discussion of Urel last week. To go along with those ideas, are there any other characters, uh, again included, that would make for good dissension arc in the Alliance? The Horde has had more of its share of following its leaders to morally reprehensible acts, and I'm reminded of uh, Proudmoore's quest to stamp out the fledgling Orgrimmar, etc., I'm sure we'll be dealing with Trend and Glenn's, uh, Gen's plans for a while, but how far would they be willing to go? Or willing to go? Not necessarily full-on bad guy, but becoming fanatics, as discussed with Urel. Hopefully, my question makes sense and works for y'all. This is from Bootzilla, uh, Torn Birdbear on many realms. I go ahead. Go ahead. This is more close to your heart. <laughs> well, up up front, I don't know what we're going to see Torn to go through in Shadowlands. Um that may have an effect on how far she's willing to go. Like for instance, if she gets to Ardenweald and it's, it's established that what Sylvanas and the Horde have done has completely destabilized life and death and may very well have like done horrible or irreparable damage to her goddess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, that's why things were allowed to happen the way they were. That's something that I think would push Toronto even further. Uh, and right now, here's the thing. I keep saying this. One of the reasons that Taranda and, and Gen are so hawkish right now is partially what they've gone through. But it's also partially the fact that the Horde has literally never, ever taken responsibility for a single thing it's ever done. Yep. And it's always pitted on an individual. Yeah, it's always, you know, it's Thrall made a mistake, or Garage went too far, or Sylvanas did. The, it's like. No, at some point, you guys, when when that person is dealt with, the Horde as a group has to stand up and say, yeah, this was on us. This is our thing. We have to deal with it, even if it's not cleanly or easily dealable with. And that doesn't mean that the Horde has to has to like disband and like go, OK, kill us. We're, we're, we're evil. You know, chop us down. That's absurd. Um, but there has to be something. Like, I keep coming to the... Imagine the idea of if Thrall physically went to Hyjal right now and presented himself and said to Taranda, you know, if you need vengeance, here I am. Now, in the state of mind she's in, she might take it. Yeah. But that would be an act too far. Because here, here's a man who is just presenting himself to you to accept his responsibility for what happened. He's not directly responsible, but he accepts that his people are. They bear some burden here. And that kind of story is one that I think we need both for the Horde and for the Alliance in some cases. Um, Something that really just kind of gets glossed over is the fact that the Alliance kept the orcs in internment camps for like 10 years. Now, you can always make the case, and I've done so in the past, that they didn't have anything else to do with them. The, The Dark Portal was closed. What were they supposed to do with them? You know, in many cases, they weren't even feeding themselves. 
So there is a case for that, but they didn't make an effort to do anything else with them. They didn't try to re-educate them, really. They didn't try to like say, okay, we're going to give you this worthless chunk of rock over here to live on by yourselves. If you want to, you can leave. They didn't do anything. They just kept them in camps and watched them. There's never been any real dealing with that. There's never been an alliance figure who's gone to the horde and said, look, uh, all that aside, you know, let's, I would, we would like to discuss it. Like, how do we, you know, how do we make, how do we get past this? That's the talk that needs to happen. It's never going to happen because the story is kind of focused on the conflict between these two factions, which mm-hmm. I think at some point you're going to have to get over, guys. Uh, and it doesn't have to become we're buddies now. It does not have to be the Alliance and the Horde are interchangeable. It could very much be, okay, obviously we don't do well in interacting with each other. How about we don't? But I keep coming back to Warcraft 3. Okay. And Warcraft 3 isn't the story of, you know, big group of bad guys versus big group of good guys. It's the story of four groups that that don't directly oppose each other so much as melt into each other's storylines. Like... There's the overarching, you know, bad guy story, which is really interesting. Is if you if you look at it, it's like the humans become the undead faction. The undead faction that you play in Warcraft Three is the human faction after the main guy from the human faction goes evil. And more or less, yeah. Then the undead faction effectively fights what's left of the human faction, the orc faction, and the health faction. And those three factions are all basically opposing the undead faction, and then the Burning mm-hmm. Legion, which also shows up. Um, and was behind the undead faction all along. There's, there's a way to do this, to do Warcraft that isn't just we forever fight. And it feels like they got to that point in Warcraft three, and then they've spent the rest of the time, the more than 15 years of war of world of Warcraft being afraid of that conclusion that they reached at Warcraft three. They put, they put this out there. We didn't because in Warcraft three were the night elves and the humans allies no no the night elves were like let's kill them the only reason they didn't was because there was bigger stuff happening the legion had showed up and it was like okay that's more important than these guys the night elves and the humans and the orcs worked together out of necessity and we've been afraid of that story development ever since in terms of who we're going to get for a dissenting voice because i have moved way out of the the range of this and i apologize (laughs) this is what happens with me um and i want to let joe talk some but i think that what Toronto would do, there is really no limit to what Toronto would do. I would like there to, to see other dissenting voices that aren't the ones who have just went through a, a horrible thing. They're not. I don't like when the the victims of something truly horrific are then forced to be portrayed as the unreasonable ones. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see, you know, there used to be forces within the human kingdom that would oppose it. There used to be like the the the. Uh, wouldn't it be kind of cool to see the the Defias come back and now they're much more of a political force? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the time is right for it. And they'd be like, you know, no, you're, you've, you know, every time you keep spending our lives in these dumb wars that you keep having. You know, you did it, you know, you did it before. You did it up in Northrend. You completely, you know, look, look at look at where we're from now. Look at these human kingdoms. They're they're you bled them white, and you just did it again. <clears throat> Entire generation gone. You need to come up with a better way to do this. If you're incapable of doing that, then we will replace you, you know? And there's there's ways, like, I'd love to see, uh, I can't remember her name now, the head of the Defiance. Uh, she's still alive. We saw her again in Legion. Vanessa Van Cleef. Yep. 
Like, imagine if Vanessa Van Cleef showed up and started playing an antagonistic role. Not necessarily just straight up gonna. I'm not gonna not, not will sail an ironclad up to Stormwind and shell it, but you know, buying people, manipulating people, getting people in the House of Lords to come back. You know, actually posing a threat to Anduin that he can't just destroy. You know, you, you can't just send adventurers to kill me like you did my father. Well, especially, and she has perfect, good reason to hate him. Especially and, especially if she goes the route of, like, becoming a legitimate lord herself. Like, Yeah, exactly. Like, by, by the way into a lordship so that she, not only is she a dissenting voice, but she positions herself, like you say, in a position where she can't be eliminated. And I love that idea because at this point, yeah, Stormwind has survived... Uh, Nazoth earthquakes. Uh, it has survived uh, a gigantic old god corrupted black dragon who tried to you know rip part of it apart. It's not like an ironclad isn't going to do it at this point, not anymore. And you can't do a direct assault. But Vanessa Van Cleef is smart. That's kind of her whole thing. Let her be smart enough to know I can't face it like my father did that didn't work i tried in his way is just not the way instead i gotta be sneakier about it i gotta be a little more political about it i need to buy my way into a lordship make my make this a legitimate thing and then the people will back it because like you said pointing out how the people have died and bled and how everything's been falling apart showing in particular how I don't want to say how the Alliance abandoned its allies, but really, what did the Alliance do to help the Night Elves? They didn't mobilize fast enough. They were too busy dealing with other things. They knew that problems were coming. They knew that there was a war campaign happening. And they just, you know, they say they couldn't get there in time, but they had mages. Like, this, this is the thing that always bothered me. You have the ability... Mass teleportation is something that has been established way in the Warcraft past. They have mages that could do that. They could have been teleporting folks in. They have a portal room, just like the Horde does. They could have opened up a portal to bring troops through. They could have tried harder. And Vanessa Van Cleef can go, look what they didn't do. We can send forces. We can send massive amounts of forces daily anywhere on this world. We can we send can them to other worlds. Yeah, she can make the point that they, you know, straight up, the Horde were the ones who tricked them, and they fell yep. for it. Yep. The Horde made a faint south, and everybody was like, oh, God, let's go south. Even the Night Elves fell for it. It's like, you know, our leaders are not. And now he, they want to trust these this this group that has tricked us how many times? And you could totally, what really gets me with this is you, if you do it right, you could have not just characters that you can't just get rid of, but imagine if Vanessa Van Cleef positions herself in such a way that in order to, to like neutralize the threat, Anduin has to marry her. Yeah. Like, you know, cause he needs to find a, uh, he needs to find a wife and make, have an heir and she could present herself as the option because what option does he have right now? There's nobody, like there's no character they've established as being that, that there's lots of stuff they could do. And I'm not saying that should happen. I'm just saying you could do all sorts of things with like actual dissenting voices. Um, you've got that right now. I think, the, the Council of Three Hammers is actually one of the more unified ones. Yep. In, now in the at least, alliance. yeah. Yeah, because at this point, at this point, I think Moira has essentially proved that she has control over the group of Dark Irons that 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 are not just crazy Ragnaros followers. If the, you know the, the the mentally stable Dark Elves are behind her, they're behind her son. Uh, her son is the acknowledged Air. bronze, you know, bronze beard leader. 
Yep. He will inherit both Ironforge and uh, Black Rock, you know, the Black Rock. Both of those will be his. And the Wild Hammers are more or less going along with it. They have their own opinions and they're perfectly willing to like just say, not nah, F this, we're going back to every peak. But they're pretty much in line. So they're they're actually pretty unified. I'd like to see them start saying stuff like, look, we don't need to be involved in this. Magni is saying the planet has problems. That's where our priority is. If you guys want to go mess around with the Horde some more, go ahead and go poke the bear, but that's not our thing. Well, especially when you consider the, the amount of power that they wield as well. And, and to go to the Wildhammers. Wildhammers are a faction of, of dwarves that people often forget about. They essentially, from Warcraft, like from the beginning to now, they are the air support for the Alliance. They are the Griffin Riders. They are these folks that, like, they're essentially the fighter wing of the Alliance army. Like, yeah, they have some airships, and they can build airships, and those are fine and dandy, but even when, like, you're doing the horde side questing, when you're fighting against, you know, trying to bring down airships when you're on boats, it's not the airships that you're mainly worried about at first. It's the Griffin Riders. They're dangerous. And if that support gets pulled, because they're just like, we don't want to deal with this. We're done. We're done dying. We're done dying for stupid things that... You know, we don't have a say in. We're out. That cripples the alliance in a massive way, as far as like keeping them safe and and fighting threats from the air. That's a huge thing. That's a lot of political power. Uh, the dwarven smiths are nothing to scoff at. Yes, absolutely. You know, they the alliance well, has other smiths and things like that. But who helps create those airships? It's gnomes and. Dwarves, yeah, I was going to say, if you're talking about the air support from the Wildhammers, in terms of ground power, who makes the tanks? Yep, those are those are dwarves. Tanks were that's a dwarf. It was a gnome design, but it's dwarves who built it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you that's think another the, one. Think of the gnomes. The gnomes are like the engineers. Gnomes do a lot of engineering work, and there's an interesting thing. We've lost the greatest engineer the gnomes had, Mechatork. Giblin Melkatork is currently a, a popsicle. He is not doing anything. And he's the guy who designed the steam tank. He's the guy who designed the tram system. Yep. Between Ironforge and Stormwind, that was him. Mechatork <clears throat> designed that. He's the one who designed the gnomish, the gnomish mount. That was Mechatork. You don't know how much stuff Mechatork has designed until you sit down and say, oh yeah, that was Mechatork. It's almost always that was Mechatork. So he's gone. So that's the gnomes are currently destabilized. They just brought in an infusion of whole new gnomes that are like mecha. They're kind of tech crazy. They've been actually lopping limbs off and replacing them with robots. That's a whole other thing they just brought in. And the people who would be bringing that into the alliance are not Mechatork. You know, there's there's a huge there's a lot of stories to be told about the destabilization and the frictions between the alliance members right now. Probably more than they're going to tell because we are going to another dimension where uh, death's dimension to deal with that ton of stuff. So I'm pretty sure we're not going to get a ton of it. But yeah, you, there are a lot of people who could come in, and like you could come, you could have not just Gen. What if uh, Crowley starts going Gen? What are these people doing for us? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If, you know what if you have gnomes like uh, I can't remember the one that they've they've been using a lot. Uh, Overspark. Overspark. Or uh, I can't remember the the guy they're using for the gnomes, but the the. I think it's Tinkmaster Overspark, I think is his name. Uh, he could be, too. There could be a lot of stuff going on. 
Yeah, it, it definitely over spark is definitely a good one. And I and I like that idea too because gnomes are an often overlooked race. Like they're often overlooked and they're considerably powerful as well. Like if all of these groups started having more of it, I don't want to say like just a dissenting voice, but were more assertive, I would be happy because mm-hmm. they don't necessarily have to be like these huge dissenting things. We're going to you know, do this and do that. It's like, no, I don't think you and realize exactly how much we do for the Alliance. You're going to listen and you're going to listen right now. Because at the end of the day, the humans are probably the weakest out of all the Alliance factions at this point. Like, no, that's not true. No, the yeah. humans, the humans possess one thing everybody else doesn't. Humans possess raw numbers. That's what the humans have been providing this whole time. I would totally well, disagree. Fair with enough, that fair enough, fair enough. Faction. But the humans are not. There does need to be a part where someone comes along and explains to Anduin, as much as your father was, was high king, he reigned knowing he had limitations and knowing when to break them. Yep. Like when he went in and did the whole thing with the, the council of three hammers, he, you know, yes, he was enraged and he was very much in a position to kill Moira, but he didn't. And yeah, you helped with that. You need to start being that voice for yourself. You're, you were very good at being that voice for your father. You need someone to do it for you. And you don't currently have anyone that you're listening to who does it. Like he just dismisses people who who disagree with him and think my way is better. And that was fine when he was the king's leading ombudsman, when he was the the the, the heir who could who was the only one who could st- safely say to his father, "No, we can't do this." Now he needs someone to be that for him that he'll listen to. And it could still be Gen. Gen could provide that voice, but he needs to sit Anduin down and say. No, you need to start listening. You cannot just ignore or dismiss these concerns. Yep. You know, and that's that's something I would like to see. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it could be anybody. I, I'd be happy to see it. But I definitely think in terms of how far they're willing to go, because that was the original question. I think that, that Taronda is willing to go pretty bloody far. Oh, yeah, she's going to before the end, before everything is said and done. It's gonna go. She's gonna go pretty deep. I think. I think she's willing to go much further than Gen is. I think so too. Gen Gen has just discovered his humanity, more or less. Gen hates Sylvanas. Yes, Sylvanas, not the entire horde. He doesn't like the horde. He has no kind things to say for the horde. But when you go to Gen at the end of that whole storyline, when you go to Gen and say, "Look, Sylvanas just escaped. The horde is we're doing we're doing this with the horde." He's like, "I don't care about the horde." Mm-hmm. He's like, what about the Banshee? If the Banshee's still out there, then this was for nothing. That's where his focus is. Taronda's focus is not just on Sylvanas. Sylvanas is the main focus of her ire, but it's not the only thing. She blames the Horde. Yeah, and that's very evident from anything you like the discussion with her, the 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 everything that happens in that sort of story arc. It's the failures of the Horde led to this. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, Sylvanas burned the tree, but the Horde was not exactly, you know fighting against it they were there they were fighting they were murdering folks they were burning down what is, villages what does she see when she comes and there's Sorfang standing over her husband and he hit him from behind yeah. and that's the guy you're trying to hold out as a hero the guy that cut her husband down from behind when he was about to stop all this 
because Malfurion trusted him not to do that. He thought he would be honorable enough not to do that. And Sorfang, for his, you know, he himself even says it. I don't know what honor is. I've never known what honor is. He says this to Anduin, and Anduin tries to blow it off. Anduin will not listen, no matter who it is telling him that his view of the world is wrong. And that's a problem. Uh, Taronda is going to get fed up with it, and she'll just do it without. He, he, she doesn't. the The biggest weakness the alliance has, the weakness it's always had, is that it is an alliance. Mm-hmm. There is no actual top down control. If Taronda says the night elves are going to do something, they're going to do it, and Anduin has no no way to stop them, short of actually providing forces against them. Is, is he willing to fight the night elves? That's where this comes down to. Yeah, is he willing to engage in a civil war, essentially? Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. He does not, you know, he is standing on top of a ship that is actually made up of several smaller ships. Whereas, oddly enough, the Horde, for all that it brings in new groups and new people, it has always had a structure that locks it in place. It's going to be interesting to watch the Horde deal with that. How are you, are you going to be able to abandon that when in order to, to go with your new principles? Because it, the first time that a group inside the Horde says, we're not doing that, and now they're like, um, what do we do? We can't. We, we, we could compel them, but we'd have to use the military. Mm-hmm. We, you know, Before, we could just order it. Now we don't have that. You know what I mean? It's going to be interesting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it on both sides. I definitely think that, that Taronda's willing to go much further than we might believe or understand. And I am, I am definitely here for any storyline that that shows the alliance, kind of growing out of its delusions about itself too. Because it has them, and they're real strong. And that Anduin is the chiefest among the, the ones holding those. Delusions. Oh yeah, he's he's an idealist. He he doesn't see. I don't want to say he doesn't see the reality of it. He sees the the perfect whole in his mind's he's, eye. He's very much like the light in a way. The idea that the light sees one true path or one true goal. Anduin is like the, the the super optimistic. Look, we all want to get along, right? And at some point, someone has to try and get through to him. No, we don't. No two people, no two humans always want to get along. And you think that all, like the entirety of two peoples, yes, you're completely correct that this conflict is destructive and pointless, but it's also something that is not just going to fade out. That's why you need systems. That's why you need alliances. That's why you need diplomacy. You can't just say, can't we all just get along? Because the answer is no. (laughs) We can't. Not always. There's always going to be stuff we just fundamentally disagree on. So, yeah, I'm I'm interested in seeing where we go with this. And I think the interesting thing about that, I I will probably come back to it later, is, is that I think the Horde and the Alliance are coming to similar points. After, the more I'm seeing about it, which I think will be interesting to see. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Our next question. Hello, lore librarians. I've been playing through the new 8.3 events and started wondering about the history of the region. As someone who loves the lore but isn't well-versed in some of the deeper history, can you please give a brief question mark overview of what occurred in the Black Kingdom and the Old Gods? I look at the southernmost zones, and aside from the standard zones just having different climates as in real life, it seems southern Kalimdor, Oldham, Tenaris, Silithus, even up into the Thousand Needles and the Barrens, sustained corruption. Barren, sandy wastelands. Most other zones to the north are green and lush. Do these zones bear the mark of Black Kingdom and Old God corruption? I'm assuming this corruption also wormed Tenegold, itself into Pandaria and Zandalar. 
Why is Un'Goro the zone that seemed to be safe? You know, aside from giant man-eating insects. And last question, when did these events take place in relation to the Sundering? Love the show and thanks for all your work. Uh, Artisan, Night Elf Druid from Dragonblight. Okay, all right. Um, the Black Empire, which is what we're talking about here, goes back to before the Titans ever even showed up on Azeroth. We don't have a specific time when this happened. We don't. We know it was in the distant past, but we don't know how distant. We know it's so far back that the dragons don't remember it. And the dragons date back to tens of thousands of years before the Sundering, which is 10,000 years ago. So we're talking about a very long time ago, and that's the best we can do to nail it down. We don't have a specific year for it. Uh, I think I'm... I'm pretty much not stating anything that's contradicted by any source uh if if you know of a source that actually says it was exactly so many years ago go ahead no the the problem is we don't know how long right like by the time the titans found found azeroth and and saw the corruption and stuff like that it was we don't know how much time had passed in between we know that everything we've experienced and everything we have knowledge of all took place on one continent uh ancient kalimdor which was much bigger than every continent we know today. Mm -hmm. They were all part of it, and they were all probably a little closer together than they are now, but the continent didn't explode and get scattered. What happened was much of it subsided. Much of it fell into the ocean. It wasn't the case of... It was more of an implosion than an explosion. Uh, Because when ancient Kalimdor had the Black Empire on it, there were multiple old gods that controlled domains on it. And those domains were everywhere. Um, there was a domain to the north, which is where Northrend is now. There was a domain to the south, which is where most of the, the you know, southern Kalimdor and so forth. Uh, southern Kalimdor, um, southern, you know, eastern kingdoms, and uh, Pandaria were all part of that continent. There was the, that kingdom. There was another kingdom to the to the west, and another kingdom to the east. And then there was Yashraj. Mm-hmm who was right in the dang middle, and he controlled the biggest group. There was practically no place that wasn't either directly or indirectly under their control because they also had places where the, the various elemental lords were given were allowed to control, but they were under the control of the old gods at that point. The old gods had conquered them. When the old gods arrived on, on Azeroth, Azeroth was basically a fighting ground for the, the four elemental lords because there was no there was so much of Azeroth's native energy was going this the spirit that would normally be a fifth element that would be you know kind of providing harmony and so forth for the elemental lords was being used up by Azeroth itself and as a result the elemental lords were like in like if you look at the if, the elementals on Draenor they all pretty much get along yep like the 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 four furies that thrown to the elements are all just kind of hanging out yeah they don't, they don't really, really have with a problem. each other yeah they, they they seem to be perfectly you know convivial. The ones on Azeroth were fighting and fighting constantly and wanting to kill and destroy each other. Um, when the old gods showed up, they band they banded together to fight the old gods, but they weren't very good at it. And the old gods knew magic that could essentially just control them, and they used it. Uh, if you if you see the magic that I'm going back to warlords here, do you remember the magic that Gul'dan used to try and control uh, a fire lord? Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The essentially like proto dark shamanism. It, it's um the something of oh bloody hell I can't remember it's it's it goes back to a burning crusade quest because it's the same thing. 
that they we see get used there. There's a, a, a an elemental magic that basically just twists and forces them to do your will. Mm-hmm. He, he Goldon uses it. He it's an old god magic, and the old gods were the ones who used it on Azeroth to control the four elements. That's why Ragnaros. Uh, kind of begrudgingly did this did work next to Alakir, but he still killed Alakir's son. Um, that's that's what happened in the distant past. We don't know how long ago this was. We know it was easily more than ten to twenty thousand years before the Sundering, which is ten thousand years from now. So like thirty thousand years ago or more, the Titans showed up and saw that this was happening, and they they'd gotten. They, they knew that, that something bad had happened on another world, but they didn't know what yet. They hadn't spoken to Sargeras yet. Uh, but they knew that something bad had happened on another world on another Titan soul, a world soul had gotten lost. They didn't want to lose this one because it was the most powerful one they'd ever seen. It was more powerful than, than uh, Amon Thul. It was an enormously powerful world soul. So they were like, we, we've got to save this one. So they, they, they were like, well, we can't just go down there and, and rip those things out. We'll, we'll, we'll wreck the planet. We're, you know, it's, it's like trying to perform microsurgery on a, a sick person with like, you know, your hands, uh, you can't really do it. So like, all right, we'll make these elemental servants like we've done before. This was not new technology, but they'd done it on other worlds. But on this world, they made them stronger. They used the native elements of the planet to, to create these Titan forge and they waged war across the surface of the planet. Uh, did, did those zones t- that you mentioned today, were they necessarily the results of the old gods? No at least not this time because this war raged across the entire continent. There wasn't a place that was spared it. And it ended essentially when the Titan forged armies first beat the elemental Lords and chained them into servitude. And then they went after the old gods and the first and most powerful old God that they went after was Yashraj because they knew if we can beat him, well, he was smack dab in the middle. He was in the exact center of the continent. Yeah. And if we can take him, the rest of them aren't going to be a problem. None of them are as powerful. And and the old gods don't work well together. Like, they spent the entire time they were in control of the world fighting each other. The, That's why they liked the elementals. They're like, look at them fighting each other. That's great. Let's, we should do that. The, so they did. There's a thing I want to interject real quick, too, though. And, and I think this is where the meat of this question comes from. There's, a, there's this assumption that what we see in 8.3 when we're going into, like, the raid zone is how it used to be with the mountains and tentacles and corruption and things like that, that isn't necessarily true. And there's this, there's, uh, I've had this discussion with a lot of folks that think that the black empire was literally all of the land was tentacles and old God goo. And that was it. Like it's not necessarily how it was. They built structures. They had, you know, forces that they used, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily morphed the landscape around them. So Yeah, because here's the thing. I mean, one of the things that's been pointed out before is how big these entities were. Um, the Naraki and, and Akir were literally born from their bodies. Yes. It's like, imagine if every zone had a big oozing mountain on top of it that was just spewing forth horrors. The horrors still needed places to go. Yep. And Here's a here's a weird thing. All the tech, all the uh, the technology, for using lack of a better word, all the architecture, all the structures that we see in the Nihilatha raid, is Titan. Yes, if you look at it, and I've said this before, uh, I think I mentioned this on the other podcast. Walking into Nihilatha, it looks like all deer, because it is essentially yep. it's if if you look at On Karaj, 
Encourage is a really good example. Encourage is what happens when you leave a Titan facility under the control of an old god for eons. Mm -hmm. That's what he does to it. It's the, the old gods are always going to be corruptors. They're not builders. Yes. They're not going to be, there's not, their underlings attempt to make structures. They don't. If you ever look at like, every time you go into an old god controlled place, you always hit a point where instead of there being walls anymore, now you've, you're in oozing places in, te in like tunnels that are like gaping orifices. That's because the old gods are biologic agents. The old god itself is an enormous thinking thing. It's not... When you see the like when you see um Nizoth in the final fight, that's not all of Nizoth. That's a part of him. Heck, we even fight his his you know sloughed off skin in an earlier fight. Yep. The carapace of of Nizoth. If you go to fight you know um Yag Saran in in Uldaman, not Uldaman, Ulduar, that's just a part of him. That's not all of him. That's a very small part of him. Even the even Cthulhu, like yeah, yeah Cthulhu. We we go inside of him. And that's still not the extent of him. <laughs> yeah, it's so these things are like palaces, like evil living palaces of flesh. And when they're imprisoned by the Titans, the Titans just imprison. They put shackles on their minds more than their bodies. And you see that with, with Yogg-Saron, like particularly. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that you go into the brain room like and you yeah, can see ethereal shackles still there. Yeah, they just recently broken. Because he just recently managed to break them, that that's the interesting thing about all of this is that all that all the structures you see in any place like that, like in Olduar, that's a Titan facility that was built around him. In Cthulhu's case, that's a Titan facility that was built around him. Ankarage is a Titan facility that he repurposed. So when you see Nyalatha and you see all the structures looking kind of like AQ forty meets Aldir, that's because that's what they're going to use. All of Nihilatha, the entirety of it, is not happening. It's a, it's an idea, right? Yeah. It's When you go into Nihilatha, you are literally going effectively into Nizas' idea for the future. It's his vision for what will be. It's what he's going to turn the world into. And he's going to use the, the stuff you've given him. He's going to use the Halls of Reorigination to do it. That's like everything you see. That that's the whole quest up front, from the beginning till you get like the whole cloak thing to use the visions of Nazoth that you run, all the time to get your cloak stronger. The visions of Nazoth are the result of his corruption. It's showing you he's going to do this to Stormwind, just like he did it to to you know uh, to just like it was done to Ankaraj. He's going to do this to everywhere. He's not going to destroy Orgrimmar. He's going to corrupt it. He's not going to destroy Stormwind. He's going to corrupt it. The cities you built will also be like this, just like the cities the Titans built. Yep. That's what he does. Yep. And so the Black Empire didn't have any of that. It didn't have any Titan structures. It didn't have anything built by anybody. Uh, we don't even know. Like, We're not even sure that trolls had a society of any kind before they showed up. We know that there were probably trolls on Azeroth because they remember the coming of the Titans. But they may have been eking out little tribal lives in the shadows of these great oozing monstrosities. We have no idea what their lives were like. That's, yeah, they may have so had secret. Back. They may have had secret villages or hidden away or, or trying to avoid places them. that just weren't important to the old gods. Yeah, 
You know, the old gods were doing their own thing, just spewing forth Naraki and, and Akira everywhere and just being monstrous horrors. Or they might have sought but, refuge in some of the elemental sections, because, I mean, that's the other thing they remember is the elementals, even when the old gods, if you look at the map, they had their own subsections. Yeah, They were exactly. small pockets, but they were there. Yeah, they're on the map. If you go like in the Chronicle and you look at the map of Kalimdor, there are sections that were controlled directly by elementals. The old gods had their leashes, but they let them have areas that were for them. And, and you something... could very well have hidden those. I was going to say, a troll worshipping an elemental lord as a very powerful Loa seems like a perfectly reasonable thing. It could be the origin of shamanism on, on Azeroth. You know, mm -hmm. the, you help us, help us su survive and we'll do it. We'll do something for you. That's certainly possible. But in terms of the effect on the world, we had it. The, the world as we have it today is a result of two things. One is the reordering of Azeroth by the Titans after they beat the old gods. When they realized, oh, we can't just kill them. We got to lock them up. After they, they killed Yashraj, like, oh, oh, we can't just wipe these guys out. Oh, that's bad. Okay, new plan. We're going to contain them, and then we're going to reshape the world to heal the planet. We're going to heal the world soul with, with our technology. All, this, all the Titan facilities you see are built for two purposes. One is to contain the old gods, and the other is to basically heal and reshape the planet from the trauma of having lived through this. And the giant wound, Joe mentioned this before when we were talking about the sword, the giant wound created by ripping Ishraj out of the planet they had to, to basically contain all that power coming out of it because that power is essentially the Titan's blood, um, which, you know, we've seen the Azerite deal. They had to contain all that power and channel it back into the planet in a way that would help it heal. And everything they designed, all those engines, the engine of Nalik Shah, the engine of the Makers, all of it, everything they built on, on every part of the continent, because at the time it was still all one continent, was designed around doing those two things. And then they had sub-functions. Like, for instance, uh, Uldir obviously had a sub-function of let's study tight the old god corruption so we can figure out a way to get rid of these guys. Um, Uldamon was a, was a data repository. Uh, and it also had a whole bunch of, like, you know, um, non-curse of fleshed yet uh, earthen in it, which is where the gnomes and the earthen... The gnomes and the dwarves we have today come from Uldamon. And they might have come from the ones that came south with Arcadis and uh, Kier, but they might not have. There's lots of different little sub-functions. And originally, keep in mind that they built stuff They built stuff to be base camps for their war that they were going to have to save the planet. And then they repurposed those because, oh, well, we can't just kill them. Okay, then we new plan. But that's the world that we have is a result of that reshaping. And then what happened when the, the Legion invaded and you know, Malfurion Stormrage collapsed the Well of Eternity, creating the Maelstrom. He sunk half of the world, yep. which altered, you know, it altered patterns everywhere. We also have to keep in mind that deserts aren't necessarily corrupt or evil. Like, we have deserts on Azeroth because some places become deserts. Uh, the only desert that's a result of any specific activity is the one around um, Uldum and... Silithus and probably Tenaris. Yeah, because the uh, the reorigination. Yeah, that's the Forge of Reorigination's re fault. That didn't hit um, Ungoro because Ungoro was surrounded by Titan pylons that completely protected it. Same with from uh, every. It's the same with like with Shoalzar Basin, right? Mm -hmm. like, Shoalzar Basin, similar. Yes. 
You remember that those the, the Lich King had to collapse those things so he could get in? He actually had agents go inside and start collapsing those pylons in Sholazar before he could start sending the, the, the plague in. And even then, it That's, was very, very, like, his encroachment was so slow. Like, it was... Yeah, because he was being stopped by Freya. Yep. There was an avatar of Freya right there who was stomping them as they tried to come in. Uh, and that's similar to Ungoro. Ungoro had, up until the Silithid started undermining them, the Ungoro had those pylons, and those pylons kept anything from getting in. It, it preserved Ungoro as effectively, it was, as, I think it's been called the Petri dish of the Titans. It was yep. essentially a test bed. It's a lab. Like, you know, they had primitive life forms that were completely new to the planet that they were, they were testing out. So, yeah. And we've gone on for a while about this, haven't we? Uh, we have, but I think it's a good topic, and I think it's one we could explore in depth uh, quite a bit because there's a lot there to unpack. But I think the short of it is is that concept that what we see isn't a result of the corruption. It's a result of the Titan reordering, and mm-hmm. you have to keep that in mind. We don't know what the Black Empire officially looked like. We really don't know. But the term corruption can mean a lot of things. And even those borders, it not necessarily where like one old god tentacle reached out and high fived his brother at that the you know, the other end of the, the thing. It's those are spheres of influence. It it's yeah. essentially like a political science map, right? Like it's it's socio political mapping between old gods. So just bear that in mind when you're thinking about that topic. Yeah, and, as massive as the old gods are the Yishraj, who was the biggest and most powerful, would fit in the fingers of a titan. Yeah. Because Amatul literally reached down plucked and plucked him out of the planet with two fingers. So they were very big, but they weren't that big. They were... It, the scale of them was massive and un- incomprehensible to us, but to titans they were like, oh, wow, that's some gross bugs, man. Yep. It was the danger they posed to the infant living in the planet that concerned them, not to themselves. You know, Sargras saw a planet that was completely corrupted and he just destroyed it. He didn't have any problem doing it. You know, one-on-one, an old god does no chance against a titan. An old god can only fight titan constructs. Like the Maker's Glaive, you've seen that out in uh, Darkshore? Yep. That that wasn't a tight that wasn't an old god. It was one of the old god's biggest, most powerful servants. But the thing it fought was just a titan forged wasn't a titan the scale was completely different but i hope that answers your question at least somewhat uh and again we thank everybody for all of their questions but we're hitting our time so i'm going to go ahead and close this out here real quick blizzard watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzard watch your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow blizzard watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue and an ads free site experience for today's final thought i want to go back to tarand and this is something i've been thinking about for a little while and i want to pose the question to you i also think that she's willing to go pretty pretty far in her exacting vengeance but the question is what do you think is going to be the step too far for her what do you think is going to be the one that is i don't want to say snaps her back to reality but even causes her pause after it's said and done do you think that exists as things are right now toronto's focus is sylvanas first uh, and she's focused on that, and she's more wary of the Horde than actually focused on them. She doesn't believe that the peace will last. She doesn't believe that it, what you know they're saying is true. 
Like she no longer trusts the horde to live up to what they say. Mm-hmm. I would assume that means that if she ever had personal interactions with say uh, Bane or Thrall, she would tell them to their faces that they're hypocrites. She does not believe anything they say. Um, I think at this point there is nothing she wouldn't do, but there's stuff that she would only do if she saw a reason to. Like she's not going to just snuff out everybody in Orgrimmar. She's not going to rain fire from from Hygel down on top of them. It doesn't serve her purposes. She's not a mass murderer yet. She's willing to kill. And she's killed people on her own side in the past when she believed the stakes were high enough. Right now, the stakes are get revenge. And there's pretty much nothing in it for her to just wipe out, like, say, a major city. But if, say, Sylvanas was in a major city and they wouldn't give her to Taranda to, re- to exact revenge, to have, like, a trial and de- destroy her. Like, so imagine if Sylvanas was, like, in Orgrimmar and they were holding her because, I don't know, she got turned back into an elf and the, the Blood Elves were like, no, she's not responsible. I think she'd be willing to take out Orgrimmar in that situation. She would go to them and say, give her to me or I will take her. And if I take her, the deaths are on your heads. And if they said no, she would come to, to take her. And if it, if it meant that Orgrimmar got turned into a blistered crater and everybody in it died, she would feel fine with that because she gave them an option. You see what I'm saying with this? I do. Like there's a difference between her and Sylvanas, but it's not, it's, it's not a very comfortable one. So my thought on that is very similar. It's, it's along the same lines of of sort of like what she will do to exact that revenge. And I agree. I agree that she is absolutely focused 100% on Sylvanas. But the question is, what is she willing to do to draw Sylvanas out? And one of the things that I was considering is what if she finds out about the meetings between Sylvanas and her sisters? What if she gets the meat of that? What if she starts to understand that Sylvanas does still have feelings for her family? Would she possibly hold them captive? Would she use them as a way to try to draw Sylvanas out? Because that's the one thing Sylvanas is really, really good at. Sylvanas, at this point, we know she doesn't care about the Horde. And we know that there's nothing that I think anybody can do to the Horde that would really draw her out at this point. But could it be that? Or... Could it be capturing and torturing the Thanos? Which it's capturing and torturing the Thanos, nobody would really blink an eye at. I don't think. Um, I don't think anyone would. think I don't think anybody would care. But I'm wondering yeah, if, but like, her own sisters. I I think she'd be willing to do it. Yeah, I think. I'll be upfront. I think if she thought it would work, she she use Ganna's bait. To get Sylvanas, I don't think. Where you know, Sylvanas's biggest problems. I mean, Tyrannus' biggest problems are twofold. One is what happened, and the second is what Alun's response was to it. That's where she's focused right now. Mm-hmm. If the Alun problem was was settled for her, if she understood what had happened there one way or the other, a lot of what's currently keeping her on track is going to go away. And then you just on the vengeance mission. It, it really, Taranda is a moral person, but... She's a moral person who is used to directly dealing with her God. And that's something it's really hard for us as people. You know, I, I can talk to my God all I want, but I don't get responses. 
You know, I don't, I'm not used to being able to say, Hey, what was up with that? And having God go, sorry, things were rough, man. And it's, it's a situation that it's very hard to, there's no, if she felt fully justified in walking right with her goddess. Yeah. She, any of those things you said, she might, you might do. Yeah. And it was, it was, cause it's the only thing I could really think of that would at least immediately that would fit the bill but also be a step too far, especially in the state of mind. And we talked about this before where she feels slightly abandoned or off put by the rest of the Alliance. Where were these other elves when they needed help? Where were these other elves that she, you know, she's helped in the past that she's tried to help in the past that weren't there for her and her people. I could see sort of like the, the maniacal justification of I'll tell you right now, I would not want to be Saramar. No, absolutely not. Because, you know, if you're at the Lysra, you're, you know, Taranda is going to come, come, going to come around to you. Night, Nightborn took part in that whole thing. They did. Canonically, you they know, did. And, it's, and she's said before when, when she was dealing with that, born, like, we're going to watch you. I don't trust you. And yeah, from her perspective, yeah. The, night, the Nightborn are definitely just as bad as she always said they were. So, yeah. So... Well, that'll take us out. I want to thank everybody for uh, all the questions. Make sure you keep sending them in. We didn't get to all the ones we had. We'll we'll continue on in the future. Uh, and as always, and I asked this on on Twitter, but also if there's a theme or something you want us to dive deeper into, maybe spend an entire episode doing. Be sure to send that in as well. Uh, we're always looking for ideas, not necessarily just questions. Uh, but if there's stuff you want to know more about, something you want us to go deeper in, or something you want us to tinfoil hat live for your whole Diablo episode that you want. I know you want an entirely Diablo episode. I can give this to you guys. We're willing to do it. So send it our way. Send in those emails or hit us up on Discord. Thank you very much, everybody, and we'll see you guys next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.